This issue, the X-Men, Frenemies, The Lost Planet, Hollow Monsters, Death Sentence, and writer and artist, Monty Nero. My name is Alan Kelsall, writer and editor for Bullpen Productions. I'm at Mission Control, and you're listening to The Last Geek in Space. Hi, welcome to The Last Geek in Space, the podcast where we send comic book creators into the great beyond with nothing but artwork and magazines for company. Today's guest is Monty Nero, writer and artist, probably best known for his Death Sentence series, Hollow Monsters, and the soon-to-be-released Frenemies. Did I get that right, Monty? Yeah, Yeah. Frenemies, The Lost Planet, sci-fi spectacular. So let's jump straight into it. You're going to um, be put on a spaceship. We still need a name for the spaceship, but we're going to blast you into space and you'll get to take a few bits of artwork and comics. But we're going to give you the first comic that ever really meant anything to you to take along. What was that? Um, probably Asterix. Um, Asterix in Britain, I would say. Obviously, buying comics before that, I would get Buster and Beano, and I'd always keep them. You know, I'd always, um, always collect them and stuff. I would, uh, I would definitely say that Asterix in Britain was the first time that I read a comic and was just sort of blown away with it and yeah. how funny it was and how clever it was. And I think particularly Asterix in Britain because it's got so many jokes about British people and it's like oh, yeah. a battle right. between the Romans and the Gauls and they stop to have tea and all that kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff. But just the storytelling is really good. I mean, I read a lot of um, Gossini's uh, work after that, like his books and stuff as I got older. Yeah. And you realise what a clever and inventive writer he was. And then I think a lot of, because I read all the Asterixes when I was a kid growing up, I think a lot of it just sort of seeped in as far as like what good pacing and storytelling is and especially the physical comedy and the humour and the action. It's really expressive. Yeah, it uh, is. The art is amazing, obviously, and it really sort of sticks with you and you sort of don't realise how it's all kind of just seeping into your brain at a very formative age. So I look back sometimes at sort of death sentence and I sort of flick through it looking for something. I've got a reference for like a script that I'm writing or something. And then and then I'll realise, I'll look at some scene and I'll realise that the sort of way it's paced is just like an Asterix comic, you know, the way that, the way the sort yeah. of punch lands and then the guy goes flying across the room and then the payoff and the stuff is just very similar. The use of the space in the panel and stuff. I've got to admit, I love that sentence, but when I was rereading it earlier, Asterix was the last thing that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally very different, yeah. Yeah. So just now to talk about that sentence, actually, that was the first book of yours I remember seeing. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background and how you got into the business? Uh, I was working in computer games and um, kind of felt from doing that that wanted a sort of sense of ownership and a sort of, um, over what I was doing because when you work on computer games there's obviously about 200 other people work on it with you so any idea you might have even though I was designing characters that you know would be a fairly visible part of the game um, I still it would always get watered down by marketing usually every any every idea you had would get sort of neutered by marketing focus groups and such so um, I just thought comics would be a really good arena to sort of use um, my creative skills but then get something that felt very sort of me or that was as I intended it to be so I just started working on death sentence in my spare time and um because I was going to comic cons and stuff I think I, I I was aware that the comic industry had changed quite a lot and you could sort of do unusual stuff and find an audience for it which didn't used to be the case it used to be you'd have to sort of go through the sort of big publishers and do sort of pretty mainstream so um yeah started working on death sentence very much just as i work on concept designs for characters which was just sort of like spending ages trying to find the characters and design the characters and as i the way i work is as i paint and draw characters i um i'm always thinking about who they are because that reflects in their clothing and their tattoos and you know everything's got to have like a history and a story to it to make the characters sort of feel real you sort of, sort of see who they are through their appearance um, a lot of the time. So I spent ages trying to find these characters on the page and um, did uh, Weasel first and Verity, 
Um, and uh, as, as I was doing that, you just sort of start getting ideas of what they might say. And I always write that down. So I just jot it down as I'm painting. I, I, I write down dialogue. And uh, you end up with loads and loads of dialogue. And some of it's good and some of it isn't. But basically, a lot of that dialogue ended up being like the first sort of issue of uh, Death Sentence, where you just think, you read through what you've written, and some of it's boring, and some of it's really exciting. And you think, wow, that's a really great scene. So as soon as you've got sort of characters and dialogue, uh, it's very easy to then sort of um, turn that into a script. Yeah. So I uh, turned it into a script and then um, quite fortuitously managed to persuade Mike Dowling, who's obviously a brilliant comic artist, to yeah. um, draw it for me. And uh, that's how the whole thing uh, came about. How did you get in touch with Mike or how did you meet him? We'd met at a comic con um because uh i'm an artist as well as a writer i had like a portfolio and it was we were both just going around the same comic con um showing our portfolio to people i would look at uh, his portfolio as he was talking to someone about it and think like jesus christ that's miles better than mine (laughs) 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 this guy's a fucking genius so um i had the idea the death sentence at that point but i also had like a sort of three-page script that i'd written and I wanted, um, I thought maybe he might be able to draw it because I knew he was working on something for Titan at the moment with Frank, at that time with Frankie Boyle. Yeah. Um, so I knew, you know, he was busy and he wouldn't have time to do anything longer. So I just got in touch with him just to say, see if he'd uh, do this three page script. And he, of course, he didn't have time because, you know, if you're, you're uh, busy doing a monthly comic, um, you don't have time to do anything else. So he said no. And then um, shortly after that, Frankie Boyle just started not delivering the script. So, because he's obviously involved in many things. He just, yeah. you know, probably this comic is the least important thing that he's doing in any yeah. time month. So this script kept not turning up. And obviously that's a major big deal to Mike because that's his, that's his, he's put aside time and he's, that's his month of paycheck. So um, I was still trying to keep in touch with him and uh, said, well, I've got this script for a, a comic death sentence. Why don't you draw that instead? Um, and I'll pay you, you know, I can't pay you what Frankie Boyle's paying, but I'll pay you a decent page rate. Yeah. So that's what we did. We only put together about sort of six pages, but then we showed that those six pages to people, got it professionally led by um, Comic Craft, um, showed those pages around, and uh, there was immediately like a lot of interest in it. So um, that's, how, uh, that's how it all started. Well, that's a nice way to do it. Yeah, I've got a mixture of um, luck, meeting, talent and opportunity, I suppose. You need all three. And I think you ended up doing the covers yourself, didn't you? Yeah, well, that was always that was always a big part of it, like I say, is yeah. I just wanted to, a lot of the time when I start a project, I've got like a feeling and a, a sort of um, tone in mind. And I think feelings and tones are often massively overlooked yeah. when, people, when people talk about comics. Because I think when you think about comics you love, they immediately make you feel a certain way. And certainly the ones that stand out are ones that manage to create a kind of unique feeling. Certainly at that time, you might get things that copy it later, but they create a unique feeling in you or a unique emotion in you. So that creating that emotion was absolutely key to what I was doing. So I had this sort of feeling of uh, this kind of mixture of sort of nihilism and sort of humor and sort of reality and, um, humanity that I wanted to sort of bring to the work and I could get that from the paintings because um, you know I spent about two weeks fine-tuning this painting of, of weasel till it gave me the feeling that I wanted and then the trick was to try and get a script that gave me the same feeling and that was really difficult I remember it took me about four weeks of trying and trying to get the script to feel the same way the painting felt but uh, having done all that work, I think it's then really easy because obviously it's a no-brainer that the paintings will then be the covers because the covers sure. uh, convey the feeling that you're trying to convey to the reader and, and communicate the message you're trying to communicate. So um, all the concept art that I did end up being on a cover at some point in the series, um, which is obviously and the advantage of that as well is if you're doing career and stuff, obviously uh, you're cheap. You don't have to pay anyone <laughs> to do the cover. So, so you can... Uh, Anybody that does come in, you can share it about between you in a in a in a, in a better way. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Unfortunately, yeah. I can't draw to save my life, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it makes your path clear. Whatever your path yeah. is, at least it's clear. 
Going back to the rocket ship, we're going to give you your um, all-time favourite issue to take with you. Okay. Um, single issue or something. What would that be? Uh, I think it's Hellblazer 12. Now, I've read many comics since that I love, probably more than that. But that comic probably... Uh, it's the same thing I was just talking about, actually. It just evokes a feeling in me. And it's now mixed up with nostalgia as well, because obviously... It takes me back to being like young, and and uh, I was up uh, visiting the Wind Planet up in sort of you know what it used to be off Tottenham Court Road. Yeah. And um, I was um, uh, bought my comics, and then I went over to uh, McDonald's just to get something to eat and to sit down. And obviously, McDonald's is rammed in that part of London; it's just heaving. So we just sat down with this comic and my sort of uh, milkshake and. Just got totally lost in this world. That uh, we look at the creators in the comic, it's no surprise, really. You've got Jamie Delano writing. You've got uh, Richard Pierce Rayner drawing it. You've got uh, Mark Buckingham inking. You've got Karen Berger uh, editing, and then you've got Dave McKean doing the covers. So it's like a a real sort of uh, talent pool. And um, it was uh, issue twelve was right after Newcastle. So obviously, it had been a fantastic read for about a year. And then Richard Pierce Rayner had just sort of taken on the art duties. And then the first issue after Newcastle was a real contrast. It's a real quiet. There's very little horror in it. And it, it's very real. The characters are very real. And uh, John ends up going to stay in a sort of a, a caravan park next to a sort of um, nuclear power station. Sort of realises sort of what a dick he's been and how he's not kind of cool and relaxed in the way that he thought he was and or how these people are living in a sort of very sort of um, much uh, more enjoyable way than he is and it's sort of like a really thought-provoking and sort of a real a real uh, issue that kind of rounded out the three-dimensionality of the character yeah. um so i just got totally lost in it and obviously I'm, I'm in the middle of this busy place and i just sort of totally zoned out for about 20 minutes and just lost myself in this comic and the art and the writing and the characters and the story and everything. And I think that had a huge effect on me wanting to make comics, you know, just when a comic can be moving you in a way that's as powerful as a film or a book, uh, which has got all these other advantages, you know. It's almost the simplicity of it is the key to why it touches you so much, I think. Yeah, it's just it's words and pictures, and you have to put them together. So um, it's... Um, part of the, the, the magic of comics working its way into your brain. That's still one of the best ones on Hellblaze, I think. I loved Richard Pierce Rayner as well. Oh, yeah, Richard Pierce Rayner. Yeah, I mean, he's a brilliant artist. And um, it's a shame he hasn't done more since, really. I know. he's. I think he's doing um, some work for a football club. Is he? Yeah, um, I think it might be Middlesbrough. But I'm not sure. Oh, interesting. Um, it's funny, the impression, the only thing I know about Richard Pierce Rayner is you know, that he drew Hellblazer and I like his art. Yeah. So, and you get an impression just from his name. You imagine, oh, he must be like a really sort of like highfalutin intellectual, maybe sort of uh, with a lot of European sort of influences. Um, yeah, it's... So it's interesting to hear that's what he's doing. Let's move on swiftly. You're going to get to take your favourite graphic novel with you. So what would that be? Oh, that's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, um, so many good ones. Uh, the Impending Blindness of Billy Scott. I just read that. I love that. I love a lot of Cozy Simmons stuff. I love um, Fun Home. It's one of my favourite graphic novels, definitely. So it's one of the richest ones as far as you know, being analogous to a novel or something about what it says about the human condition. But um, probably it has to be like The Dark Knight by, um, yeah. by Frank Miller. It's just, it's just so groundbreaking and so... Um, well, well, sort of composed the use of the imagery and the staccato kind of um, text. At that point in his career, Miller was a brilliant writer, yeah. um, and he had real talent for sort of evoking real people and situations and atmospheres and cities and things, uh, all, all all kinds of different people um, in a very short. Uh, in a few strokes and in a few words. And that's really the essence of what it is to be a brilliant cartoonist or a brilliant comic artist. 
Yeah. And I think that talent has since lost him to a great degree because I read his, I read some of his stuff. Well, not recently because I've sort of given up on it. But, um, I read some of it sort of like five, six years ago. It just it was nowhere near as nuanced or as sort of um, capable. I don't know what's happened, but it's just not as good. It's not what it was. So, uh, but for a vast period, he was he was creating like genius stuff and like really breaking new ground in the medium, and it still stands up now. I just I just had to reread his um, first one on Daredevil. Oh yeah, um, I mean, which, yeah, they're still again. riffing off today, you know. Yeah, and that that is where a lot of those ideas kind of develop, mm-hmm. and uh, it comes from being a sort of a writer and artist and figuring out what bits need to come from the words and what bits come from the imagery. How little thing about Dark Knight is how little um, visual information there often is because the cropping is so tight. It's very difficult sometimes to see fully a figure or to figure out exactly what they're doing. But it comes through the sort of uh, text side. You sort of um, it's almost like listening to a radio play or something. At times, just sort of like the dynamism of the sound effects and the the the, the dialogue and uh, that with a tiny bit of information, visual information, and it will really uh, you'll have no doubt what's happening. But it's not done in the same way that other comics will do it, where they'll just show you the figure fully, kind of like doing whatever they're doing. So it's. Um, it's a really brilliant bit of work. And things like the way the colouring works so well, which I think a lot of the time with colouring, I think it's almost like a happy accident because they sort of work together on other things like Electra lives again and colouring doesn't work anywhere near as well with the art in that, even though it's a really fantastic book and very interesting. It's sort of like some sort of magic. I think that's often the way with great works of art. Some magic is added to the mix, which is why, you know, The Dark Knight is better than Ronin, which, you know, came before. Um, Running's very experimental, but it doesn't got great bits in it, but it doesn't work anywhere near as well as um, the Dark Knight does. I don't know if you, I don't think you'd be able to have the Dark Knight without warning. No, no, yeah, um, it was a step there, wasn't it? Yeah, step it was a stepping stone. Yeah, I don't know what I've done with it. I, I had, I think it must have fallen apart because I bought it like when it came out, and it's obviously got this massive fold out pages, yeah. stuff, which is really interesting, but again, doesn't really work too well as far as. You're losing yourself in a sort of world within the graphic novel if you have to sort of stop and fold out oh, pages and stuff. True. It's kind of a bit of a gimmick, I think. Would love to still have it, but I think it must have just disintegrated. Well, I'll talk about Batman as uh, ties into the next question because um, we're going to pop you into space and you're going to be allowed one current character or fantasy character with you on the ship. It'd be one character you'd love to be on the ship with and um, one character you'd hate to be on the ship with. Just amused me because a few weeks back I was chatting to someone who'd really hate to um, be stuck with Batman. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it'd be quite intense. Yeah. Um, I would hate to be on a ship with Judge Dredd. Much as I love <laughs> reading the comic, uh, I imagine that would be a thoroughly unpleasant experience. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, being stuck on a spaceship with a, uh extremely violent fascist with no sense of humor. <laughs> Um, it was obviously got a lot of issues related to uh, not knowing his parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably so, far better to go with Rico, his clone brother from right back. Yeah, yeah, yeah And then uh, the character I'd like to be trapped with at the moment is um, Carlton, who is the uh, professor of astrophysics in Frenemies, the Lost Planet. And um, He's a character who um, who is very driven. He's driven by searching for his son who went missing in a comic shop in 1986. And a lot of his research into sort of um, pocket universes and things are all sort of tied into trying to explain that disappearance. So he's a very driven character, but he's also incredibly capable and knowledgeable. And if anyone would be able to successfully navigate us around space and get back home, it would be Professor Colin Lombard. So um, that that would definitely be the guy I'd like to be with. I was just about to ask you about Frenemies. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about it? I think it's, yeah. Is it going on Kickstarter soon? Yeah, it'll be uh, launching on Kickstarter on the 14th of October, uh, midday. And it's about um, seven characters who are both friends and sort of rivals who are searching for a planet 
a mysterious planet that used to be uh, the dominant force in our solar system and it uh, disappeared completely in mysterious circumstances so um rumors of the planet start to resurface and characters realize that um the technology that the uh, whoever dwells within the planet uh, possess is so powerful that it looks to us like dark magic because uh, we just simply can't understand the sort of quantum level of their engineering so one of the characters has to reach the planet and stop our solar system, our solar system being destroyed uh, by whoever now has control of this technology. And they have to sort of choose who it will be and uh, fight amongst each other as to, as to which one of them it will be, but also help each other so that at least one of them does make it to reach, reach the planet. Uh, so within that, there's all sorts of ideas about sort of um, how a planet might be made to disappear or made to look like it's disappearing because uh, i'm quite interested in the sci science fiction side of it there's about three or four ways you could feasibly um, make a planet appear to disappear even though it's still still there so uh we'll be getting into all that kind of stuff but also it's just a really fun kind of old-fashioned flash gordon style serialized cliffhanger type space opera with a lot of uh, laser blasting and action and, and uh, villains and so forth and a lot of um, sort of funny dialogue and amusing situations and a lot of conflict between all the seven characters who are all very different all, each of the seven characters is very different and they've all um, found themselves in this um, predicament they didn't want to be in where one of them has got to get to this planet and, and save the solar system you've got another great artist working on the book as well yeah yishan lee uh amazing artist um you know, obviously does a lot of work for Image and um, she's done stuff in the past for Dark Horse and um, DC. She did uh, a comic for DC as well. So uh, very lucky to have her. She was my ideal choice because I, I, I knew I wanted to use this art style um, that Yishan has. And she's very good at character stuff, uh, like getting the emotions of the characters and designing the characters and um, having the characters sort of act and interact. And that's really key to how the story works. Um, so, um, yeah, really, really excited to have her be part of it. Um, that ties in, actually, to the next question. So we talk about comic artists. You get to take one page of artwork by your favourite comic artist. What would it be? That would probably be uh, a page of Born Again by Dave Mazzucchelli. Again, that's a comic that sort of blew me away when I first started, you know, reading comics. And I think I bought it after The Dark Knight, and I thought it was going to be sort of something similar. But of course, it's not because uh, Miller's not drawing it. And also, I knew nothing about Daredevil at that time. I'd never read the character. So initially, I wasn't very impressed. But then as I sort of came back to it, I started to realize just how stunningly good the art and the storytelling was. And Mazzucchelli, he's not one of those guys that sort of is a pretty artist or, or, or an artist where you can take a panel and put it up on a wall and say, look, yeah. this is a beautiful bit of art. But he's probably the greatest comic artist I've ever seen as far as telling the story. And he just has an incredible talent for choosing the exact right posture and facial expression and composition to tell the story in the most powerful and effective way possible. And the sequences, I think, in Born Again that are better than anything in Year One, which is generally, you know, mm. regarded as a, as a sort of a, more of a, a premium work. But um, I think overall, the, the the story in Year One is, is fantastic, and the sort of cohesiveness of it and the colourings probably a little bit better. I think there's scenes in Born Again that are as good as, or if not better, than scenes that are in um, that many you want and uh particularly i'm thinking of um there's a scene in um i think it's like god and country which is i think the fourth issue or the fifth issue it's not the new one isn't it i think yeah and um there's a scene where uh, ben goes into this cell to interview the nurse that's been uh, working for the kingpin and uh, there's just um it, it all happens sort of silently with nothing but the 
click click of a camera that's taking the pictures for the story, kind of giving you a sense of time. And uh, all the storytelling is done just through the visuals as um, one of the cops is sort of corrupt and pulls out a gun to sort of kill the um, uh, nurse. And then, and then Ben has to sort of react to that and stop them all getting killed. And uh, the photographer is taking pictures all the way through this. And it's just, it's just an incredibly tense scene. Yeah. And like, just really uh, edge of your seat sort of drama, the emotions in everyone's faces and the staging and the body language is just absolutely impeccable. It's like, it's like um, you know, Francis Ford Coppola level of sort of directing and acting yeah. and so forth and lighting and just a brilliant, brilliant scene. So he was the first comic artist that I started sort of copying when I was a kid and kind of trying to figure out how he was doing what he was doing and spent ages copying his scenes and his panels and his, his breakdowns and pacing of it and the lighting and everything. And through him, I realized that he was a massive fan of um, Alex Raymond. He's obviously uh, Flash Gordon, Rip, uh, Rip Kirby, sort of uh, 1930s, 1950s newspaper artist. And um, just one of the greatest comic artists that have ever lived. A lot sort of neater and sort of more pretty and photogenic style than um, Dave has. But um, you can see very much the the uh, connection and how they sort of draw and how they do faces and how they sort of compose a panel and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, definitely one of the one of the best pages that I've ever seen. It's, it's, it's in that book. I talk about books you used to like. I think your Hollow Monsters series was a bit of a nostalgic trip back, wasn't it? Yeah, that's sort of a mixture of autobiography and horror. Um, I didn't want to do like a straight autobiography. I wanted to do something that was more like a novel. So uh, mixed together a lot of uh, fictional elements into it to create sort of a mystery, but also tie it into stuff that was happening to me in the 80s and stuff. So um, I was just working on uh, issue three of that actually this week where um, the whole of issue three is going to be set in the 80s. So um, it's going to be very much um, full of nostalgia. But it's not just that. There's also sort of quite a dark heart to it and quite a, uh, a serious sort of mystery at the sort of centre of it. It's really fascinating when you look back at the, uh, do the research for it, you look back at the news at the time, how sort of similar the news was as far as there being a lot of fear about and uh, a lot of terrorism. It was all to do yeah. with our IRA back then. Then, of course, the fear was, you know, nuclear annihilation and the Russians and Americans firing nuclear missiles. You can sort of go back and you can watch news reports from sort of 1984 and 85, and they're absolutely terrifying. Every story is terrifying. There's yeah, a, you forget a, about it now. <laughs> yeah, there's one that's like the fifth story on the news is that we were 30 seconds away from the Americans launching a retaliatory strike nuclear strike against the russians because of a computer malfunction yeah and you're like jesus christ and that's the fifth story because there's four other stories that are more <laughs> terrifying in that so i think the difference is back then the news was a bulletin and or, or it was a newspaper and then you get on with your day yeah Whereas now um you've got 24 7 rolling news and then you've got updates on your phone whenever you turn it on there's some even on social media if you're not looking yeah. at the news you get some doom scrolling update so I think psychologically, yeah. psychologically, the way it affects people is very different. And well, it's, um, it's easy to be addicted to it as well. Yeah, you know, just, you know, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. you said, doom scrolling. I just heard that phrase last week for the first time. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the effect it has on people is very different. But I think actually the world is now more or less safer than it's ever been. Um, yeah. As far as if you look back to our history. Going back to artwork, we're going to let you take a favourite cover with you into space. What would that be? Uh, that is um, uh, Mick McMahon, uh, Monkey Business at the Charles Darwin block, which yep. is on the cover of 2000 AD. And then also it's been used a lot on uh, 2000 AD monthly and various collections and so forth. And uh, it's just absolute peak McMahon, who... Um, had an absolutely genius way of drawing dread, and he, he, he's all, he, he was at this stage of his style becoming quite experimental. I think he reached this sort of pinnacle around the time of sort of block war, where it was sort of like um, 
was sort of like a balance between the sort of traditional sort of composition that he was using prior to that, which was very much influenced by Esquera, and then uh, the more kind of out there kind of style that he eventually ended up with in the later part of his career. And uh, I actually love that period of his work where it's sort of like this, you can see he's really excited by the sort of stylistic changes he's made, the rendering, and it's sort of like, it's perfect for Dread as well because it's like funny, but also it's very sort of heavy and you feel the weight and the power of the character. And um, it sort of manages to be both scary and amusing at the same time. And it's like a perfect TB Grover dread story. It's just a one-off, you know, but it's got everything in it. It's sort of like funny and entertaining and action-packed and amusing and says something about human nature. And it's got, it's got some fantastic um, iconography through the, there's like a center spread where there's amazing McMahon drawings of like dread and the lawmaster and the city and then all these monkeys that have been de-evolved humans have turned into sort of apes due to the frib virus or going amok in the, in the block um, air conditioning system. And um, there's a massive sort of text block up one side of the page and all the monkeys, there's about sort of 60 monkeys all climbing up it and destroying it. It's just an absolutely joyous story. And the cover is just, just sums it all up. It's just really, uh, um, really powerful sort of, image of dread on his bike and uh with all these monkeys sort of hanging off monkey men hanging off him um just really just sums up everything that a good dread story should be i think i remember seeing that image and i bought it straight away and then i took it home and i started drawing it i just thought it was just absolute brilliant genius work it's brilliant how about a geek related object we're going to give you to take into space that would be uh when i was researching and drawing um the first two issues of hollow monsters i bought a vic 20 now not because i needed one uh yeah. obviously uh you know, i can draw a vic 20 it's quite <laughs> simple but um vic 20 was the first computer that i had so i just really wanted one and they were quite i was quite surprised how cheap they were unfortunately i can't play it anymore because i no longer have tv i had a tv for oh. a while as well because i kind of i just hoard things i've got loads of stuff i've lost and whatnot you can tell by my room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hoard stuff. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got the VIC-20 and I need to find something to plug it into now because obviously oh, no. it needs to go into an old-school TV. Uh, does it the old tape recorder? Yeah, yeah. That's a very evocative sound, isn't it? The old yeah. um, games sort of uploading from the cassette and all the sort of whining and pitching and uh, static that you'd get. It was all quite exciting. Uh, spending uh, days typing up programs from computer max yeah yeah from c and bg yeah uh, never realized you didn't miss the full stop or a comma somewhere yeah yeah but then that's how we all learned about programming yeah. and that's how we became yeah. really preeminent in the computer gaming industry is because yeah um, that's what i've heard that's everybody everybody sort of learned how to program from um typing in all these these um lists of uh basic kind of games in the back of the magazines and figuring out how it worked and then doing their own games. Whereas um, in America, everyone was just sort of playing an Atari, you know, yeah. and uh, and not learning anything. And of course, CMBG had a great comic strip in it for a while as well. Do you remember Jerry Paris? He used to do a lot of the covers. Yeah, he used to do right. some Marvel and Hulk stuff on the cover. Yeah. And then he did um, Bug Hunters with uh, Melissa Ravenflame, which is uh, one of my earliest crushes. Um, on to music. You're going to get take a song with you into space. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, I mean, I like the Stone Roses and things of that era, but it would probably have to be Marvin Gaye, uh, What's Going On, I think. Yeah. Both the album and the single, they're both genius. And it's a song and an album I have literally never tired of throughout my entire life. It's the first, I loved it the first time I've heard it. And most albums and songs, you sort of, you love them, but you sort of don't listen to them for a while. Um, but I've always, I've always played that when I'm sort of, just need to chill out or just want to relax. Um, it's beautiful, beautiful music. He's an absolute God-given talent. He's just an amazing guy. Amazing singer, amazing writer, amazing um, musician. But, um, 
that album is just so much more than just a beautiful album. It's, it says so things about the world and about humanity that still are relevant today. Sadly, just as relevant as they were back then. So it's uh, it's got everything. It sort of makes you think. It sort of calms you. It sort of makes you happy. It sort of uh, moves you. It's just an absolute work of uh, genius. I think. So it'd be good to have that in space and look out over the uh, distant stars and feel that sort of sense of uh, happy calm. Yeah. And then wonder what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, how about a book? A uh, book? It would probably be oh, so many books. Um, brr, oh, so difficult to choose one. Um, I love a bird song. I love um, a lot of Pat Barker stuff. I love science fiction novels, but I think it'd probably have to be Amsterdam by um, Ian McEwan just because it's so funny and dark and it takes the piss out of creative people, which is something that um, I obviously recognise a lot. Um, takes the piss out of creative people, politicians, newspaper editors in a very cathartic way. It's very dark, but it's also very funny. And it's also, I like reading books that are just like a the the someone that can really manipulate language well and, just like when you read their text, it's just like a sort of soothing balm for the mind. It's just sort of like the beautiful rhythm of, to the language. I think that's one of the great uh, powers of English as a language. And when you get a really talented writer who can yes. use use all the the full arsenal of uh, descriptions and metaphors and um, you know dialogue and stuff, to make it all very real and effective. So I think he's an absolute master at that at his best. Yeah, Amsterdam is probably. Uh, won the Booker Prize, obviously. So I'm not alone in thinking that's a good book. Uh, it made me laugh though when he won. He won, and then he sort of said like, "Oh, it was only supposed to be like a little jokey thing in between serious projects." And I thought, like, <laughs> you wanker! God, it's obvious, obviously, yes. obviously a brilliant book, and you obviously spent ages working on it. So shut up. <laughs> um, and how about a movie? Uh, Back to the Future. Oh. Uh, very sort of different reasons, I suppose. Just, um, just my favourite film. I just never tire of watching it. I love, it always entertains me. It always amuses me. It's uh, brilliantly put together, plot, writing, character. Uh, I love the fact it's about both the fifties and the eighties. So you've got like yeah. nostalgia for both periods in time, and everybody in it is brilliant. Christopher Lloyd and uh, Crispin Glover and uh, Martin McFly uh, himself. Yep. So uh, just an absolutely perfect film. I just never, and uh, just, a, you know, unashamedly entertaining sort of movie that that um, uh, that I love. And um, weirdly, though, because I love it so much, I loved it straight away as soon as I saw it. And I, I watched it immediately, like, multiple times and went to the cinema multiple, multiple times to see it. And watched it a lot when it eventually came out on video. And I still watch it regularly now, but I've never seen the sequels. Because oh, it's wow. just one of those films okay. where I just so I love it so much. It's sort of like if you love a dog that you've had for a long time, and then you see someone try and make a copy of that dog, but it's not quite right, and yeah. it's sort of like uh, I, you know, it might be some people might find that a little bit disturbing. There's a dog you love that is now walking around not quite in the right way, and it does. It looks like your dog, but it's not your dog. Uh, I find that with the sequels, I just sort of look at them and I think like, yeah, that is Back to the Future, but it's not actually Back to the Future. I think I. I mean, I'm sure they're great films. They must be, but I just I can't bring myself to watch them because I love the first film so much. I just don't want anything to sully that perfect experience. One of my mates watched the second one, well, all of them with his son recently, and um, yeah. had to explain to his son in the second one, Mike McFly is going 30 years into the future to five years ago. <laughs> yeah, that would be quite confusing to uh, yeah. a child. Yeah. Yeah, get your head around that. Right, you're going to be in space in the ship and they're going to get sucked through a time vortex space wormhole thingy magic and they're going to get the chance to live on any time or fantasy realm you care to it can be like viking age it can be narnia and where do you want to live if you had the chance right i would live in the marvel universe from 1961 to 1963 
when all the sort of you know cornerstone or most of the cornerstone characters um kind of appeared in this incredible burst of creativity between jack kirby and stanley so you've got sort of from sort of like november 1961 to september 63 you've got the fantastic four and all the infrastructure like the daily bugle and the globe uh you've got the hulk in may 62 you've got spider-man in august 62 you've got thor in um august 62 iron man march 63 nick fury doctor strange uh in may and july 63 the avengers in 63 and then you've got the x-men in september 63 yeah so you've got this incredible 60s vibe going on you've got this uh amazing art style from jack kirby you've got um all the swinging dialogue from uh from uh um stanley and you've got this sort of interconnected universe that's kind of appearing between your eyes so if you imagine if you're living in that city and all this stuff is starting to appear around you and and it's sort of like a mix between Mad Men and and uh, the greatest superhero sort of comics you've ever read and it's all super exciting and all joining together and um that must have been the most incredible experience to read those comics as they were coming out and uh, to actually be in that city as it was appearing around you and to have all that uh um, excitement i'd probably go to the off panel areas the sort of counterculture areas i'd be sort of down in like the gay bars and the sort of uh <laughs> dodgy sort of head shops and the sort of that never should never appeared in the comics i can see a marvel series in that yeah yeah absolutely yeah so uh i, w- I would definitely love to write that um yeah. and uh, be in it if uh, there was an opportunity that's great one of my mates, um, his ambition, if he had a time machine, would just go back in time and buy a copy of Action Comics, number one, my newsstand. <laughs> yeah, and then keep it really, really flat. Well, that was the point we thought. If you bring it straight back, no one believed it was the real Action Comics because, you know, it'd only be a day or two old. Ah, yeah, so yeah. got confusing yeah. after that. He'd have to go back. He'd have to bury it somewhere that only he knew where it was in some sort of, sort of genius sort of um sort of airproof container and then he'd go back and dig it up again and it'd be the right, right. age then then he could make all his money yeah. so what would you say is the best moment of your career so far well um as far as what i enjoy um it's probably fighting frenemies at the moment because i'm just so excited about it and it's i think it's such a great story and great characters and great concept and it mixed mixes together all these old things i think about the classic sci-fi as we've all sort of seen it you know what i mean the laser blasting yeah. and the villains and stuff so you have to find a way to make it fresh and new and i think we've done that we found a way to make it seem like mix the best of the old sort of sci-fi with some more sort of progressive new ideas and uh it's really come together with a second issue so super excited for people to to read that um, and that's why I do create own comics is because like the main thing for me is just to to like I say have that sense of authorship and to enjoy what I'm doing and to to get uh, really lost in the world that I'm creating and the characters that I'm creating. So no, that's uh, what I was going to ask you because you flirted with Marvel a bit. I think you did yeah, a couple of X Men yeah. stories, but you seem yeah. to prefer like to create your own. Path yeah, I like I like to work into Marvel, but um, yeah, I definitely want to do create around just the priority. As far as like what other people would say was the pinnacle, it's probably like writing the X Men, which I did twice, and I really enjoyed it. It, it. You know, it was uh, good for me. It was good for them. I think they were keen for me to, you know, pitch other stuff. But I just, I just didn't want to get into pitching other stuff. I wanted to, I wanted to work on my own stuff for a bit, and it's definitely something I'll go back to at some point. Um, but I really want to get like I've got like three or four really sort of key what i consider key sort of comics that i want to get out yeah. sort of say what i am and who i am and what i think about comics and um i want to get those out and then once i've got those out then i can maybe think about doing some other stuff but yeah um probably the x-men stuff i wrote some you know uh full issues of uh, the x-men and the hulk but i also did like a 10-page story in the x-men gold annual and yeah. that's probably my favorite thing that i did for marvel just because it was the thing where I managed to do my own thing, but for them, because with the other stuff, it's all very much tied into what they want to do and where they are with their characters at that point in time. And 
you know, things they want to say about their characters and you sort of have to come up with a story that kind of serves their needs and that's really what being a writer for Marvel is. Yeah. Whereas with the X-Men gold story, I managed to stay, I knew what was going to happen. They were going to come up with ideas and things they wanted to do. So I said, right, this is what I want to do. So I, I immediately pitched them this idea about uh, this little story I could do in the annual where, you know, it wouldn't really matter too much because it was in the annual, so no one would, you know, care if it wasn't on point with what was going on in the massive crossover at that time or whatever so i just did this really uh personal story about why i love the x-men which is called yeah. why i love the x-men yeah. and it's got my daughter in it and my sister in it and they're now both part of the marvel universe if you go to <laughs> the marvel wikipedia you'll find that they are part obviously very small part yeah but um i used i managed to get their real names in there so um they're both part of the marvel universe I just, I just love the story. I love the artist who, who drew it. He did a great job, and it's just a really, um, just really proud that I, I managed to do that, um, and uh, say, you know, what I, what I felt about the X Men, and, and deliver a good story too, hopefully. And members of your family are now owned by Disney. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you're leaving on the ship, family and friends aside, what would you miss about Earth? Uh, the ocean, definitely. Um, I've lived by the sea now for ooh, since about 2004. So brought up in the middle of the country, so it couldn't be further from the sea in this country, you know, in Stanbridge in the West Midlands. So never saw the ocean apart from when we went on holiday, you know, which was very rarely yeah. as far as going to a sort of beach or anything. So... Um, just by chance, really, ended up in 2004 living right next to the sea in Vancouver and um, working on computer games over there. That was really nice. Didn't get to see the sea too much because obviously I was working too hard, yeah. but it was still nice when I did get home. You know, I could see it out of the window. Um, and then when I moved here, so now I live in Dundee in Scotland. Property is a lot cheaper in Dundee than it is sort of down in London. So we got like a, a, a nice house with a nice view looking over the see which is just really beautiful to wake up to every morning and to look out of it from your bedroom window and your lounge window and stuff um and loads of houses in dundee have got similar views because dundee is a city that is perched on a volcano that looks over the sea it's an absolutely stunning sort of layout for a city so um, in the old days of course it was always blighted by factories and smoke and lots of ships and in the harbor but of course there's none of that anymore so now it's, it's just changed. Like, yeah, it's changed yeah, a lot in the last now 20 it, years. It? Now it's all about design and um, they, you've got all these sort of really nice beaches and beautiful views looking out over the estuary and stuff. So it's a really nice place to live. So, um, and, yeah, centre of the comics industry as well. And Well, yeah, a lot of good comics history. We've got yeah. statues of comic characters in our city centre. So that's always good, I think. Um, we've got Minnie the Minx and Desperate Dan. Isn't there a new museum up there as well? Yeah, the V&A Design Museum. That's yeah. an amazing building. It's stunning. Yeah. I mean, the interior exhibits are great, um, but the building itself is like the greatest exhibit. It's just an absolutely mind-blowing building, and it doesn't matter how many times you walk around it or through it, you can walk through it and around it. It's sort of like a sort of arch through the middle of it. It's just an amazing... It's one of those buildings like the sort of Sydney Opera House or something where it's just like a iconic design that um really suits its surroundings and yeah that that really works well so i'm not one to generally get excited about modern design but yeah it really 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 works that did i've not been to dundee for about 30 years a few of my mates went to art college there you have to come up we'll go for a beer and i'll show you you a few sites show you through a few of the local yokels yeah that'd be Uh, good when this virus business is over, <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of. Day. I think everyone's going to spend months just drinking and hugging people when the virus is gone. <laughs> you can look at some of the comic stuff, and yeah, yeah, it's a good place yeah. to visit. One of the last questions now. We've got a new one called "Get My Guilt." Um, you can have a little rant about something that's really annoying you at the moment. It doesn't have to be anything major. It can be a little thing or whatever you feel like. So, what's getting your guilt? Uh, well, we've got to obviously have an end to this mumbo jumbo post truth bullshit. Yeah. Because um, it's dangerous. I mean, it starts off seeming quite innocuous with a few wacky theories about, oh, did the moon landings really happen and stuff. 
But then you end up with Donald Trump. You know, you end up with this post-truth idiot. I hope you're not suggesting Donald Trump's not been sent by Jesus to save us from (laughs) the likes of Tom Hanks. This doesn't understand science, doesn't understand basic, you know, human language or human emotions. And um, I think the basis of any civilised society is you need to have a belief in science and evidence and a universally accepted set of facts. And if you don't have that, then what you get is, you know, the absolute chaos and madness of Trump's America. So, um, yeah, there needs to be more embracing of the need for for uh, an end to this uh, post-truth bullshit. Well, I'm starting to think it's not nuclear war that's going to wipe us out of stupidity. Yeah, it is. It really is. Because well, you can right. see from the reaction to COVID, it yeah. is killing people. It's not, yeah. not, it's not a joke. It's killed hundreds yeah. of thousands of people because um people don't believe in science or, or facts yeah. and uh, that is genuinely uh dangerous for us as a, uh, for us as a race so yeah. we have to be less tolerant of it yeah i totally agree um we're near the end now so thanks for everything but any last words well thanks for having me on it's been 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 a pleasure and um yeah if people want to check out my work go to montenero.com uh forward slash frenemies that's uh, M-O-N-T-Y-N-E-R-O. And um, you've got like a preview of a comic you can read there and also links to other stuff you can see or you can buy related to the comic. And then obviously you can find Death Sentence and Hollow Monsters there as well. If, uh, and I if think you'd, if you'd like to. And by the time this is out, you'll be able to go to the Kickstarter. Yeah, there'll be, a, there'll be a link yeah. to the Kickstarter there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Um, Well, thanks for your time and um, enjoy your trip into space. Thanks, man. Awesome. You've been listening to The Last Geek in Space. Thanks to Monty Nero for his time and Paul Morris in Vegetables at Last for the music. Last Geek in Space is a Bullpen Productions creation. Check out our website at bullpenproductions.co.uk and alancouncil.com and buy my books. Step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah.